Okay, good. So, comrades and friends and sisters and brothers, welcome to this session, which in a way for me is illustrating the, the fundamental theme of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald's leadership, which is this idea of power from below. You know, that socialism isn't simply about the state. It needs the state. It needs a different kind of government, a socialist government, but above all, a government whose who's kind of foundations are based on a belief in the capacities of working class people. And in a way, this session, I think it's got different titles. For some people, it's workers' control and economic planning. For others, it's the Lucas Plan and the New Economics, or the worker, Workers' Planning and the New Economics. <clears throat> but in all these themes, in all these titles, is the idea of economic change coming from the power of working class people. So that's what this session is about. And it's focusing initially on an experience in the 70s, the experience of the Lucas Aerospace workers who took the initiative in, in their own hands or took power into their own hands in the face of, of redundancies and closures and the failure of traditional trade union strategies and instead decided that they had the capacity and the, and the, and the initiative and the power uh, to, to impose an alternative on management if they got political support, which was what was promised by Tony Benn when he thought, partly because of the support of the, the party then and, and parts of the trade union movement and then of the voters, he thought he had a political mandate for a different kind of economics. And what's amazing, and it's true of Jeremy, uh, and in a way the whole possibility of, of change, is the way in which initiatives defeated in the past somehow reappear. And I think it's not, it is a kind of aspect of history which we can discuss in more detail at some other point, but you know, the fact of defeat isn't at one moment of history, isn't, isn't a, a sign of permanent defeat. Because the same crises that, in a way, produced or led workers to produce an alternative at one moment, that crisis, the underlying structures and tendencies producing that crisis, in a way, deepen and get worse and reoccur. And workers, in their different ways, in different forms, actually also learn lessons and apply that alternative again. And that's what's happened. This Lucas Aerospace Initiative, which Phil here, who I'll introduce in a second, will talk about in detail. That was an initiative of the 70s, at a time of, of, of crisis of industrial structure, unemployment, uh, and politics, and the beginnings of, of, of the crisis of climate change and the emergence of a new technology, which was... Uh, actually destroying human skills rather than enhancing them. Um, that crisis has deepened. And so it's in some ways not surprising that when young people now facing the, the crisis of the climate uh, and crisis of unemployment and crisis of jobs, meaningless jobs, precarious jobs, they're sort of searching for historical examples and, and they come up with you know, actually saying, well, what about, I mean, there's so many conversations where, where people in their 20s are saying, what about this, this group of workers? What was it? Lucas, Lucas, Lucas Aerospace. Um, and, and so I'm able to say, well, yes, actually, I worked with those shop stewards. So this is what we're going to start with. So my fir the first speaker in this session uh, is Phil Asquith, who I knew when he was very young and a lad, a mere lad, <laughs> working in the Burnley Lucas Aerospace factory. And I just um, 
through the backing of the Lucas Stewards, got a research grant from the Open University to write a book about their experiences. And Phil was allocated to be the liaison officer <laughs> with me uh, uh, to write this book, which has now been republished thanks to Spokesman. And I have to say, Spokesman Press, which was funded by um, posthumously by Bertrand Russell's royalties uh, was that also produced the Institute of Workers Control which at the time of the Lucas Aerospace initiative was a key a bit like the world transformed but not as dynamic not as not as popular not as big um, not as youthful but they they brought together shop stewards the, the historical the agents of historical change at that moment uh, you know to actually coordinate and spread the ideas of the Lucas plan and in a way I feel that the World Transform is doing the same thing. It's bringing together the, the agents of historical change of today, which aren't necessarily the, the, the shop stewards of yesteryear because Thatcher defeated that movement, but not didn't destroy it. And so there are shop stewards still organising, working, and PCS, which Sam represents here, is one of the organisations that that is representing that new layer of shop stewards in the public sector. Anyway, Phil was one of the, the key architects of the alternative plan. And so I'll hand over to him first. And then I'm going to be, I'm hoping, um, though we're getting messages, it's very unlikely that John McDonnell will turn up, but he, he or somebody from his staff will. And if not, um, several of us here can say something more about his the importance of his uh, economic policy, and in particular, and why one of the reasons why we're organising this session is the emphasis that both he and Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, the L Labour Party that's emerging from the sort of the the the, the ashes of New Labour, you know, is emphasising that idea of workers' control of public ownership but public ownership under workers' control, under the control of those who really know how those industries, those infrastructures can work. Um, and then we're going to have uh, Sam Mason, who's from PCS, uh, and I'll introduce her in more depth. And then um, Pat Devine, who's written a very important book, um, Demo Democracy and Economic uh, Planning, with the very... Um, profound subtitle The Political Economy of a Self-Governing Society and then it'll be very much over to you so we want this discussion to itself prefigure the idea of initiatives and um, knowledge of, of, of the participants not just the, the, the sort of top table as it were so I'll hand over to Phil Thanks Hilary, can you hear me? As Hilary said, my name's Phil Asquith. I'll start the clock, so I'll be in trouble. My name's Phil Asquith. I've been married to the Lucas Plan for 40 odd years. I was involved uh, not just at the beginning, but before the beginning when I was a bit uh, less crinkled then, uh, and after the plan, and for, for many years afterwards. When we drew up the plan in the mid 1970s, uh, none of us dreamed. We would be hanging around conferences 40-odd years later talking about the plan. And I think that's because we are still facing the same issues as then, only writ larger, because of uh, the expiration of the planet's resources, which are meaning that the market-led economy can no longer sustain itself. So that's my pedigree. I was at the Burnley plant. I ended up as chairman of the Joint Shop Stewards Committee, 
we represented 3,500 members and we were the second plant in, in the size of Lucas Aerospace to, to the Birmingham plant. Um, what I want to cover in 13 minutes uh, maximum is the conception and evolution of the plan, the background to it, and the political response to it. And um, the conclusions I've got written down may have to wait for the discussion to surface given the, the time constraints. In the late 60s and 1970s, British industry was hemorrhaging jobs for a variety of reasons. The main ones being the formation of the Industrial Reorganisation Corporation in the 1960s, fund, uh, set up by Harold Wilson's government and funded by taxpayers, and the idea was to increase productivity. One of the outcomes for the people who worked in the industry was tens of thousands of jobs destroyed. The second reason, uh, and I'll use Harold Wilson's name again, the phrase he's immortalised is the success and the benefits of the white heat of the technological revolution. And in the press of the time, uh, a lot of you I can see weren't born then, the issue was that robots were going to be doing all the work and the biggest social issue was going to be how did we all spend our leisure time? But what really happened was that the white heat simply burnt up members' jobs and created pools of unemployed people. So instead of leisurely reduced working time, we had one pool of people being forcibly made unemployed and the others who were lucky, in inverted commas, enough to be left behind working at a frantic tempo. Society then and now, and I think John's referred to this recently, had and still has no mechanism for spreading e equitably the benefits of automation. So that's still very much an issue. The third issue that you can still see running through industry is the application of Taylorism. Frederick Winslow Taylor was the father of scientific management and what that's all about, and you don't have to look any further than the car industry to see it, Taylor wrote and practiced that in my system, the workman, and it was usually a man then, is told precisely what he is to do, how he is to do it, and any improvement he makes is fatal to success. You don't have to look much further than Toyota and the other car plants to see that in practice. So what was being said there, and it has been practiced for many years, what that which is most precious in a human being, their skill, creativity, ingenuity, enthusiasm, has to be ironed out of the production process. These three factors I've just described together led to speed-ups in production, they led to the fragmentation and de-skilling of the design and production process, and they also led to the beginning of the uh, phenomenon now known as structural unemployment. Jobs that were technologically displaced by the misuse of technology, jobs that once they disappeared from the economy never came back. So that's the background. Uh, on top of this that the, uh, that the workers in industry had to face was in 1974, Labour was elected twice that year. Uh, they made a pledge in the manifesto to the nationalisation of the airframe industry and they also pledged defence cuts. And there was no reason at that time to believe that the defence cuts wouldn't be implemented because that's what happened uh, in the past. At that time, the quadrupling of oil prices didn't help things either. 
So the British trade union movement had to face all of these new factors from a structure that was developed on the craft base of the 19th century. Um, the, these factors uh, compelled almost the formation of combined shop stewards committees. Um, they, the Lucas Aerospace Combine Committee was formed and consolidated over the late 60s and early 70s. And it was a direct result of what was going on in industry and the official trade union movement's inability to cope with globalization. So the companies had moved on, but the trade union structure hadn't. Within the combine and without the combine, there would have been no Lucas plan. We were all uh, held credentials from our own unions, but when we came together, somehow magically, in the eyes of the officialdom, we became unofficial, uh, the economics of the madhouse. So in 1974, just to say that the combine represented 17 Lucas Aerospace plants, 14 geographical locations, 18,000 members, and at least six manual and staff unions. So the need for working together in a combine type structure uh, was absolutely essential. Um, the combine meeting in 1974 looked at all of the factors that I've described, and the big issue, because jobs were falling like leaves from autumn trees, how to defend members' jobs. I'm sorry I'm going a bit fast, but there's quite a bit to get through. We looked at the various valiant struggles that were going on in British industry in the early, early 70s. There were occupations of factories, there were sit-ins, uh, we looked at nationalisation, that had never been a panacea for workers in the industry. Uh, campaigns to retain, sorry, to retain existing product lines. Uh, but it seemed to us, after this long analysis within the combine, that the continued manufacture of products that no one actually wanted was doomed to failure. And this was particularly true of the weapons industry, and 70% of the work at Lucas Aerospace was weapons orientated. We then decided to request a meeting with the newly elected uh, Labour government in the form of the Secretary of State at the Department of Trade and Industry, one Tony Benn. We met Tony Benn in November 1974. Um, we had two and a half hours with him. This is the combine. And there were no civil servants and no trade union officials to control us. That type of meeting never happened again. We had two and a half hours with Ben, and what he said was fascinating. He said, shop shows committees are coming to me every day, Ferrantes are collapsing, Alfred Herberts and so on. Uh, I can't do anything at the 11th hour. In the defence industry, you have long lead times. You have time to plan what would you make if your existing product line uh, ceases for whatever reasons. We went back to our Combine Shop Stewards Committee, the full committee, to discuss the Ben meeting in January 1975. Ben said, go back and um, consult the workforce. He even offered to set up a tripartite meeting with the company, which we were a little cagey about. Um, there was a long discussion on the, way, on the way forward. We were looking at entering territory that no one had been to into before, to boldly go. Long, difficult, uncertain debates. Not easy. Towards the end of the discussion, 
The actual problem that we were facing was crystallized by the Combines liaison officer, Ron Mills. And I'm going to give you a couple of quotes that sum it up all very nicely. The problem that constantly faces trade unionists is that when they work to the same criteria as the company's accountants, their impact is marginal and they become part of the crisis rather than the victims. A workers' corporate plan will become marginalised too unless we work to radically different and unorthodox criteria. More discussion. We were all starting to get tired, but the light seemed to be appearing at the end of the tunnel. And uh, our dear comrade Mike Cooley brought together the sentiments of many combined speakers. Mike said this, the only way in which we could be involved in a corporate plan would be if we grew it in a way which challenged the private profit motive of the sorry, profit motive of the company and instead talked of social profit. If we Sorry. If we propose socially useful products, what would be said then? The only way we could do this would be to be completely independent of the company. And at that point, the way forward suddenly became clear. It was like a veil being lifted. The Combine decided to draw up an alternative to the company's corporate plan and to do so independently of the company. A plan to save jobs by making products to fulfil the unmet needs of society. Products to be measured by their use value rather than by their exchange value. There was a lot of uncertainty around that decision because we were going into uncharted waters. There weren't any trade union manuals on how to draw up a workers' plan. And as far as we knew, there were no precedents. But we thought we were on the right track because isn't what this, what the Labour Party stood for, the redirection of resources away from the military to more social, socially useful ends. Um, we went to the members. We always had to have mass meetings and go through the democratic process. And the members at each of the Lucas Aerospace sites endorsed the decision to draw up an alternative plan. Um, the plan was launched in London nationally in 1976. We launched it in Burnley at an evening meeting filmed by the Open University and included in their technology course. Um, I'm not going to go at this point into the detail of drawing up the plan because there isn't time, but I will just do a commercial break now. The full detail of the construction of the plan uh, is in a film uh, produced in a brilliant fashion by an independent filmmaker called Steve Sprung. It receives its international premiere, premiere at the London Film Festival. Sorry, it's, you the yeah, it's called The Plan. It's the plan. plan, yeah. I think it's subtitled The Plan That Came From The Bottom Up. That's on the British Film Institute website. We've got leaflets at the front. And the premiere is on the 14th of October in London. And uh, there is a second screening on the 17th in London. And then later on in the month, it's going to be premiered at the Lisbon Documentary uh, Festival. If you go to it, take your knitting or a lot of popcorn because it's three hours long. <laughs> right? So that will cover the detail of it, and there's plenty of other things, including Hillary's book. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to get going. Uh, 
We presented the plan to the management. They refused to negotiate it. We went back to the Department of Trade and Industry, which was under new management. Uh, they'd moved Ben on to the Department of Energy, and we got a much frostier reception. Now, I won't dwell on the minutiae of this, although it is fascinating uh, to discuss in a different meeting, but we had massive widespread national and international support. So who could be against us? <laughs> the Department of Trade and Industry, thanks. The Department of Trade and Industry and the responsible officials of the Confederation and Shipbuilding and Engineering Unions. Uh, they thought they'd been having secret meetings amongst themselves, but they weren't so secret. We observed them. Uh, it's summarised in an extract from the company's personnel report for that year. And you don't have to read too far between the lines to see what was going on. It is clear that the national officials of the unions and the Department of Industry are aware of the company's policies and the CSEU is dealing effectively with this unofficial body. So those two-thirds of the parties who should have been on our side were against us and only the year earlier at the Labour Party conference in Blackpool, support for the Lucas Aerospace Combines campaign, I was there, was unanimously endorsed by conference and that was the outcome. So what we have now is the products that were proposed in the plan are now everyday technology hybrid power packs, wind turbines, solar collectors, solar technology, all of that where the UK could have got in at ground level, all of the benefits, the jobs and so on has accrued to anyone but the UK and those are only a few examples of what was turned down. Uh, the government proceeded to give uh, Lucas Aerospace more taxpayers money to reduce jobs and funnily enough a brand new factory was built with part of that money on Wilson Road in Highton. That's a coincidence isn't it? <laughs> right, time's running out so I'm going to skip a bit. Um, one thing I will say actually, the Nuclear Education Trust produced this booklet on defence diversification in June. It lists a lot of Lucas type struggles around uh, different countries in Europe and in the United States and it's well worth reading for the main conclusions it draws from all of the struggles are the essential criteria are that the struggles are generated from the workplace, from the community, from a bottom-up rather than top-down approach which is exactly what we did. Um, did the Lucas plan succeed or fail? should know that by now really. Um, it's often said in, uh, in the write-ups about the Lucas plan that it failed because we were unable to convince the establishment to make any of the products. Well, uh, I would make the following points. One, uh, the plan has succeeded in uh, generating and raising the profile of the issues that we're all interested in workers' control, workers' influence, workers' plans over a period of 40 years. It's often been used as an example for arms conversion. 
it's shown that workers like ourselves, working from the bottom up, were absolutely right in their technological forecasting. If you read the plan, what was uh, seen as uh, adventurous then is now commonplace technology. So when we are right in the trade unions, I make no apologies for saying that we were right and they were wrong. But the important thing now is to look forward and to learn from the lessons of that struggle rather than repeat them. But during the period of the plan, not one person lost their job in Lucas Aerospace and that was the original objective of the plan. Thank you very much. And just at the right moment, John has arrived. <laughs> so he's not got much time, but I know that the time he spends here will be hugely worth it. Okay. Um, look, I apologise. I've got about three or four minutes. So there's lots. I, there's nothing going on really out there. <laughs> okay. And in traditional world transformed, um, uh, I'm in, I'm double booked in the world transformed as well. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, let me just update. Um, a lot of the ideas that came from Lucas Aerospace Plan and the, uh, the concepts and discussions, um, Mike Cooley in particular, who I love the man, I thought he was wonderful, just as a, not just as a trade user, but as a human being overall, and were then translated into the GLC by Hillary and the team under Robin Murray, the late Robin Murray, another hero actually we need to remember, that was translated into the basically popular economic planning that was developed by the GLC, which was about how we could bring workers together to understand their local economies, the, the economy of their firm, develop the skills and ideas about how they could then influence the firms, even if they were in private hands, influence them through their trade union representations, but then also develop them potentially as worker owners firms and cooperatives, etc. And that work was going on apace during the GLC period through the Greater London Enterprise Board. And actually, if you look at the, if you look at the London Industrial Plan, which is a volume um, that many of us have kept over the years, sometimes propping up the opening of the door. It's a good doorstep. It's so heavy. Um, but actually, look at that. Some of the ideas that were taken directly from the plan were sent, put into that strategy document. It was huge, and it was a sector-by-sector and I think was uh, challenged everything that um, Thatcherism was all about in the early 80s, the monetarism, the early stages of neoliberalism, but it was giving confidence to people about what they could do within their local areas. Uh, so it's no wonder Mrs. Thatcher abolished us, okay? Uh, because it was an absolute direct challenge to Thatcherism at the earliest stages of it. That work, um, uh, I think, it inspired a lot of people, but we went into, not, we didn't just go into an economic recession, I think we went into an ideological recession for a period of time as well. Some of the institutions that we had set up then that were driving through these ideas were either scrapped or went into decay, or actually also were taken over by neoliberals too. So we went into a period of relative decline in that sense. Um, however, where are we at now? I think we're, we're at now as a sort of a renaissance in all these ideas. Some of you may have seen that we did uh, an alternative models of ownership conference when we produced an alternative models of ownership report. That was produced by a whole group of people working together. 
If you haven't seen it, read it. I think it's one of the best reports that have ever come out of the Labour Party in recent history. It's absolutely superb. It goes through all the different options that we've got of extending worker democracy or economic democracy within our society. And I'll be saying more about that tomorrow, uh, just to upset the Daily Mail, really. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, um, <laughs> the, 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 the ideas that were developed, the, the ideas that were developed there was obviously in terms of public ownership, so renationalisation, but not in the old form. And we're launching consultation papers this week, both in terms of how that's brought about. There's a, a, a group of workers have come together, done a really good piece of work that will go out to a consultation about how we manage the public ownership sectors that we're bringing back into public ownership. Again, on you know in, in rail, energy, water, and Royal Mail, etc. Have a look at that. Because it is, you know, we're not going back to any statist institutions. We're not going back to the old form Morrisonian nationalisation. This will be about democratic control by, yes, expert management, but by workers themselves on the front line, by consumers or passengers, but also community representatives too. And that will enable us then within those sectors, I think, to creatively develop worker plans that can not only ensure that those sectors are contributing to a wider society, but actually also financially and economically viable and environmentally sustainable for the long-term future. That's part of it. The other part is that we said in the last manifesto rather timidly we'd double the cooperative sector. Um, the co-op party produced a report for us that was launched about six weeks ago. It is superb. It's basically saying if you want to double the cooperative sector in this country and you want to go further, here's the mechanisms for doing it and how you go about it. Setting up a co this is not revolutionary, it's setting up a co-op de development agency, making sure there's the institutional structure that can support the grassroots in particular in developing cooperative ideas. Extending, therefore, the right to buy to workers so when, when companies get sold on, they have the first right to purchase that company and bring it back into, co bring it into cooperative ownership itself. That work now, there's a working group that's been established from cooperators, trade unions and others, uh, and they're doing detailed work and they will go, be going on tour all around the country with those ideas to, to talk about uh, how that relates, not just to national thinking or anything like that, but how that relates to the locality in particular. The next um, initiative that we've done is every fortnight now, every, every other Saturday, uh, Bloody knackering. What we're doing is we're touring around the country, my treasury team, the community workers that organise that we've got on the ground, in individual communities. It's so we'd, we've gone from national conferences, regional conferences into community conferences now, where we bring together party members, trade unionists, local community representatives, businesses, and anyone who wants to walk off the street to keep warm. We then talk about... Literally, this is what we know about your local economy. These are the statistics. You tell us about your local economy. And then what we do is we talk about the ideas about National Investment Bank, etc., development of cooperation, support that we can give, and say, on this menu of ideas, how are they applicable locally or what other ideas have you got? Now, we've done the first two, and literally it is every other Saturday. Um, you get about 150, 200 people turn up. For, for most of a Saturday, buzzing with ideas in workshops, etc., sitting around tables to discuss their local economy and what they could do. And all the ideas that are flowing from that, local energy schemes that will be owned and by the local community, alternative energy schemes that are being developed, what sectors of the um, industry manufacturing base that they want to sustain or maintain, uh, what sort of new technology that they need to invest in, what infrastructure that is needed. I went to Pendle, they wanted a railway line between Colne and Skipton. Um, and then, uh, then said, actually, you signed a petition on this 30 years ago, so you're down to be committed. Uh, so I said, 
So I said, OK, we'll do it. And then Andy Mack said, will you stop touring around the country reopening railway lines all the time? But, but interestingly enough, that was what their community campaign was. And it turned, what they're doing, they're taking an economic issue and they're turning it into a community campaign that they will own and, and control as a, as a community itself. That's where we're at. There'll be further announcements this, this week as well on the development of it. But the TUC, we also announced this issue around collective ownership of companies too, whereby you take the model that's used elsewhere, where companies have to pay shares into a collective fund that's managed collectively. So that gives the opportunity then of workers themselves to have a direct say of an individual company both as shareholders and also an income from those shares too. In addition to that, as you know, uh, Jeremy announced this weekend that a third of workers, a third of boards will be comprised of workers. What we're doing is literally, it's a, it, you know, our party has been all about uh, extending democracy, whether it's, you know, in Parliament, whether it's for, for women, whether it's uh, in, in, in the, the trade union movement or whatever. This is a, a significant leap forward in terms of economic democratic rights within our community. Uh, of course, it will be opposed by some. Uh, and we, we, we expect that, but I think it will be uniquely popular because for the first time people will be able to, retake, I suppose, take control of their lives within the workplace or within the working environment, but they'll be able to do it in a way in which they participate in the decision-making and they receive the rewards of ownership as well. That's where we're up to. I've got to go and talk about football now. That's fair. And then I'm going to leave. Thanks a lot. good and so good to get that update and also uh, such a sense of how we've all got to get involved and so let's see this session as almost like a, a preparation for the input that you're all going to make as that that knackering tour goes around the country um, so I'll hand over immediately to Sam Sam Mason from PCS who's the policy of one of the policy officers at PCS but is also uh, also involved in the, the what's called the new Lucas plan which is another group of people who are touring around the country, um, developing and applying the kind of ideas that, that Phil was telling the story of, uh, and then feeding that back into the process that John outlines. So, Sam, really happy that you can come. Great. Thank you, Hilary. And I um, don't feel in a good place now, actually, to follow John and that very um, good intervention there. But... Um, yeah, I am part of these two things, as Hilary said. I'll talk a little bit about the new Lucas Plan project in a minute, but um, I think perhaps say a little bit where PCS is coming from and why I'm particularly speaking on this issue and why our union is in, involved with this. Um, for those of you who don't know, we're a civil service union with about 180,000 members. Um, we work in administering the welfare system, collecting the taxes, staff in the museums, public museums and galleries, so covering a whole range of things, but basically making sure the state runs. Um, but one of the things we've been particularly involved in, particularly since the financial crash, and then more recently, um, is in the One Million Climate Jobs campaign and something called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, um, and furthering the aims of energy democracy, which is public ownership and democratic control of the energy system. And this brings us back around to why this is important in terms of the Lucas plan, and something just to say, sort of very personally, I was 10 when the Lucas, um, oh, 
<laughs> I was, I was, I was 10. So yeah, those who've done your mental arithmetic, that um, tells you. Um, but the Lucas plan has always been at the backdrop. When I've been growing up and getting my own sort of trade union political education, the Lucas plan has always been there, sort of in, in the distance and behind and always talked about. Um, and I think coming sort of where Phil finished around the successes or failures, I was quite surprised in around 2015 when there was first an idea about having a... Uh, conference celebrating the 40 years publication of the Lucas Plan, that when I took this into trade union circles, a lot of people said, yeah, but that failed. What's the point? And I was like, well, well it didn't fail to me. The fact that we're still talking about it means that it hadn't failed. I mean, there were things that obviously worked against the Lucas Plan, things which Phil um, eloquently highlighted, um, Obviously, things which John himself has just alluded to in terms of the rise of neoliberalism, Thatcherism. So it was really an idea at that time that was just going against the grain. So what we're saying now, it's an idea not just whose time has come, and that's what we have on our, our, our leaflets, but it's very much an idea which we do need to revitalise and revision. And I always like the statement in, or the comment made in the sort of 1980, I think it was, by Tony Benn that said about the trade union movement needs to be bold and it really needs to rethink its vision if it's going to widen out um, that vision and include other people. And I think that's very much what we need to do. We are a battered trade union movement now. We've got about 23% of membership. We're not anywhere near where we were in the 1970s for reasons which everybody will be familiar with. Um, but it's not just about a question about our own membership. There's many issues for that. But it's about the challenges that we're facing today. And so the, we've got a, the backdrop now which we are facing as workers um, in terms of increasing automation, increasing militarization, and the threats of climate change. It's really confronting workers what the future world of work is going to look like. And at the moment, we don't really have agreed solutions on that in terms of the labor movement. But we do have some ideas around that. And as I said, one, one of the things that did come together in um, 2009 following the financial crash was unions, environmentalists, academics, which put together the One Million Climate Jobs campaign. And this was about creating jobs that will lower greenhouse gas emissions, will be new jobs that will be working in renewable energy, retrofitting of buildings. Um, and basically, these would be government jobs. So this is an absolute government uh, programme. One thing we're practically trying to do now is use this to build an alternative to fracking in the file at Preston New Road. Um, working with local community groups there, we're doing this in conjunction with the Bakers Union, who, as you know, are leading a really inspired campaign at the moment um, around the McDonald's workers and the kind of things we can all learn from. Um, but we do need to think where we are as a trade union movement. And unfortunately, I think we are coming to a bit of a, a difficult place where we have to have some really honest discussions about how we organise ourselves and how we actually start to build the kind of bottom-up planning uh, for socially useful production that Phil has talked about. The Labour Party and what they've announced has actually given us a lot of hope um, because it's now starting to talk about some of the things which some of us have been uh, campaigning for for the past few years. 
And the reason coming back to PCS, when I talk about public ownership of the energy system, because we very much see that the future of energy is not an estatist, bureaucratic, Whitehall delivery of a nationalised energy system. And I think this is one of the things that hasn't actually come across very well about where the Labour Party are with this. And actually, we have consensus on this across the trade union movement in terms of public ownership. We don't think the Labour Party are going far enough, um, but that's a, another discussion for another day. Um, but what we actually see in PCS is what we need is a new worker-public partnership. So actually where you have workers, as John has alluded to, not just on boards, not just an industrial democracy of, of workers on boards, but where you have workers actually engaged in what needs to be delivered at the local level. So if you're talking about a local energy company, what's the best form of energy and engagement, working with people there, and how do you deliver new structures? And even The Economist, I think it was back in May, highlighted that one of the things in terms of Labour's new economic policy is the kind of structural changes that they're talking about. And I would agree, that's one of the things that gets largely missed in a lot of the discussion. I think that's one of the more exciting things that's happening. And also provides the basis to start doing some of the um, planning that the Lucas Aerospace workers did. But where I come back to where the trade union movement needs to change, because unfortunately at the moment, we're going into a very narrow space. We had a, very, a couple of very good motions at TUC Congress in 2017, one on climate change and the need for a publicly owned energy system. The other was lobbying the Labour Party for a shadow defence diversification agency, which was a really big step forward. Um, Unfortunately, this year at TEC Congress, we had a motion that was carried, although I'd say very narrowly, that talks about just transition. So this is the protection of workers through as, as jobs change, as a response to climate change, and also automation. But talks about just transition, industrial strategy that is led primarily by energy sector workers. Now, some people may think, what's wrong with that? Well, on the face of it, Nothing. Energy sector workers will be one of the most impacted groups, particularly in responses to climate change. But it narrows the discussion to a very small section of the workforce and of the trade union movement. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about just transitions, what we actually need is a transformation. We need a political and industrial transformation. It's not just about a green job swap. That's not right, is it? job swap, um, and a sort of collective bargaining that's narrowed around wages and job protection, social protections. Those are all needed. Nobody's saying they're not. But we need much, much more than that. And we're never going to be able to discuss the kind of ideas and processes that the Lucas Aerospace workers did if we stay in this very narrow definitions of how we transform our economy and actually how we work together across the labour movement. Um, and I think it's really important to highlight that we cannot work in silos. This is a national problem. It's a global problem. We have to work across our unions. There will be one solution that's good for one set of workers that won't be good for another set of workers. And we have to work collectively. And we have to do that on a global scale, because particularly when it comes to climate change, these, these kind of discussions is what's happening right across the world. And I was... Um, fortunate to be in South Africa with South African trade unions a few weeks ago and they're having exactly the same conversation. So what we need is equity and fairness and collectivism. But I just go, but obviously what we do need is new ideas and ways of organising across unions so that we can build the kind of workers' plans that Phil has talked about and that we can create those to solve and uh, confront some of the challenges we're facing today. And I will stop there.
Sam, that's really good to make those links between particular issues like energy and this wider transformation. And that's really why we felt it was very important to have Pat Devine here, who's done a lot of work. I mean, he too, we're all a bit crinkly up here, but he too is a veteran of, of that era when there were so many alternatives being developed because there's such confidence amongst working class people, such hope, and also such support coming from people like Tony Benn. And now we have a leadership like Tony Benn and, and, and better. I mean, well, not better, but, you know, uh, contemporary. Uh, and so it's really good to have Pat, whose book actually came out in 1988. So clearly, at the height of Thatcherism, he was working against the grain. Uh, and now those ideas are relevant. And that whole issue of how to think beyond the particular company or the, the particular sector, but think in, a, 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 in terms of the transformation of the economy as a whole is the central challenge. So, Pat, it's great that you're here. Thanks very much, um, Hilary. And um, I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I want to start from the um, document that uh, John McDonnell mentioned, alternative models of ownership. Uh, and the three forms of ownership which are singled out there are cooperative ownership, municipal and local ownership, and national ownership what we might think of as state ownership. Now, I want to uh, propose a fourth form of ownership, which I think would enable us to think about, theoretically, the different problems which have already been raised by the other speakers uh, this afternoon. And that is the concept of social ownership. Social ownership is uh, the form of ownership which I develop uh, in my book here. And essentially, it is the ownership of enterprises, of assets, by those who are affected by the use of those assets. And interestingly enough, in Saturday's um, Guardian, uh, John McDonnell is quoted as saying that the um, Public and Community Ownership Advisory Board, which he is proposing to establish, um, would be charged with seeing, examining whether consumers, workers, and communities should be involved in the ownership of enterprises. And that is a move in the direction of what I call social ownership. Workers are affected by the activities of the enterprises in which they work. So are the users of what the enterprise produces. And so also are the communities in which the enterprise is located. We've already heard the issues of problems that arise when these decisions about whether enterprises should expand or contract, whether they should close, um, are taken by private owners responding to market forces. And the problem is that if you've got different enterprises which are interdependent, as all enterprises to a greater or lesser extent are, with one another and with their uh, consumers, um, then you've got to discuss the way in which those enterprises are related to one another. How are they related to one another? So we've been talking about workers' plans. Now what happens if we get cooperatives, both two cooperatives, both of which spot an opportunity 
for producing something which is socially useful. How are those decisions made by the individual enterprise linked to one another? How are they coordinated with one another? And essentially, in most societies, that happens through a process of market forces. The people who control the enterprise decide what they think is going to be profitable, or if we have alternative uh, measures of usefulness, socially useful. But supposing they both spot the same opportunity to produce something which is socially useful, how is that coordinated? Now, there are examples of this. Um, John MacDonald, for example, is reported, as I've already said, as uh, charging his public and community ownership advisory board with considering whether workers and communities should take part in the ownership of these enterprises. Not just workers, but communities and users, consumers. So it seems to me that if we think about it like this, then we have a new framework in which to approach these problems, particularly if we follow up the idea of um, social ownership being ownership by those who are affected by the decision, then that means, and it has to mean, um, that you've got a system of layered decision-making, what's sometimes referred to as subsidiarity, where decisions are made at the lowest possible level, which enables everybody who's affected by the decision to be involved in making that decision and taking it out. So when it comes to the use of a firm's existing capacity, then you can see that the users, the communities in which an enterprise is located, the workers working in the enterprise are the three main groups who are going to be affected. But when it comes to investment, which either increases the size of the enterprise or disinvestment, which decreases the size, whether it, when it comes to decisions about whether enterprises should expand or should contract or close even, then a wider group of people, of groups, are affected by those decisions. And therefore, when it comes to enterprises, you've got one set of social owners, but when it comes to investment decisions in an industry or a sector, which are interdependent with one another, you've got a different set of owners. So here you've got the social ownership determined on the basis of subsidiarity, on the basis of the level, the nature of the decision and how widely that decision makes itself felt. Um, so uh, I think that the advantages of this are if we think about subsidiarity, we can think about how enterprises are related to one another, how the actions of one affect the fortunes of another. And that's, I think, the central problem that we have to confront if we're dealing with the question of worker plans, enterprises' plans being determined by the workers. Okay, so the workers, but then let's add the consumers, the users of those enterprises' output, and let's count the communities in which they're Located. We could also, if we wanted to, say that groups representing environmental and ecological concerns 
should be involved in they making the decisions because they will be affected by the decisions of the enterprise. We could also think of equal opportunities groups. They will be affected by the decisions. So the concept of social ownership based upon a structured, layered structure of decision making um, is one, I think, that will help us to address the sorts of problems that um, have been raised here. Um, now, for example, uh, in this country, but not just in this country, we do have uh, examples of, uh, historical examples of structures which enabled this layered decision-making to be considered. And they, those were the Economic Development Councils. Um, John referred to development corporations, but we have had experience in this country of uh, what was called the National Economic Development Council. Um, and then for each industry, there were what were called the neddies or the little neddies. And here, what happened was that the government had its representatives on them, the unions had their representatives, and the management had their representatives. And so you had a way in which you could link together the decisions on investment in a particular industry through their little local NEDI, the local national economic or the industry economic development council. So I think that um, from that point of view, we can begin to see that it's possible using the, the structure, the democratic structure that we're all interested in, a bottom up, but not just bottom up, also linked in a way that also feeds down. Um, so you get a two-way process, um, which is based upon active involvement and engagement, which um, you need to have if you're going to plan both the economy as a whole, in the historical example of this country, the principle but not the practice, was that the uh, National Economic Development Council would determine priorities, would determine the direction of development uh, that you wanted the economy to go in, which industries you wanted to expand and which you wanted to contract, would make decisions which reflected those prior decisions so that if you were contracting an industry, you would plan to replace the activities, the jobs that would be lost as a result of that. Um, and if you were expanding, you would want to take account of what other industries were expanding in the same area so that you didn't get overheating. Um, so you need some sort of structure which enables interdependent decisions to be considered together so that you arrive at a plan which is a workable plan and a plan that enables the economy to be moved in a direction determined both at the national level but also at the local level uh, and the levels in between in the ways in which the people in the, at those levels, in those uh, countries, in those localities, uh, want to happen. Um, so that's what I think um, we need to begin to think about. Widen our horizons so that we have a framework in which we can think about these very complicated problems. And after all, modern economies are very complicated and you can't just pretend 
that they're not complicated. You have to look at the interdependence between them. One of the essences of planning as a means of allocating resources rather than market forces as the way in which resources are allocated is precisely that in planning, interdependent decisions are coordinated in advance, whereas in market forces, they're coordinated after the event, after resources have been committed and it's discovered whether in any particular case the resource deployment is going to be profitable or whether it's not going to be profitable. So I think that it's quite encouraging to see that we've got movement in this direction uh, from John uh, himself uh, and I was very interested in what he said, both what he said beforehand and what he said uh, just now, uh, this afternoon, uh, that I think the way in which people are thinking is moving in this direction of trying to take into account the complexity of different levels and the way in which those different levels relate to each other and within each level, the way in which separate enterprises, separate workplaces, separate communities coordinate what happens so that you don't get a situation in which one area or one enterprise benefits at the expense of another area or another uh, enterprise. We need therefore to have a layered system of decision making which enables us to combine in a coordinated way interdependent decisions and in that sense regain control over the society we live in, the economy which informs that society and rather than the current state of affairs where we're constantly fighting against the unintended consequences of decisions made by other people elsewhere and we don't want to replace private cooperative ownership as a replacement for private non-cooperative ownership, private ownership by individuals or by companies or by pension funds or whatever. Uh, what we want to do is to move to a situation in which we can, between us, plan the outcome of the economic activity that is taking place. And obviously, within that framework, um, we have um, to take account of the things that have already been said that one of the inputs into that process would obviously be decisions by workers in enterprises on their own ideas about what the enterprise could produce, what it should produce, informed by the localities in which the enterprise is based, informed by the input from consumers, from the users of what the enterprise produces. And so that, I think, is the essence of um, a self-governing society one which takes account of these interdependencies and also incorporates the insights, the inspiring insights that we have got from the Lucas Aerospace, both the original plan and also the work that Sam and her colleagues have been doing. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Okay, so don't go. Please stay, because now is the important part of it. We've all, we've had our perspectives widened, our imagination uh, inspired and refreshed and our confidence boosted by, by John's contribution. So now it's up to us. 
<coughs> to make a real contribution. So <coughs> please don't go. Um, I know there are lots of really good sessions, but now engage with each other. And so let's, let's hear from the first contribution. And please, when you speak, could you introduce yourselves uh, and say where you're from? So who'll contribute first? Hello, uh, I'm Graeme Casey from Liverpool. Uh, on the question of social ownership, I think it sounds um, really good from the point of view of organisation. The only disadvantage I can see is uh, the amount of time taken to uh, arrive at decisions where you've got so many different decision makers involved. And I know through uh, trade union meetings how long things can take. Uh, is it possible that uh, the time taken could affect uh, a situation where, say, the financial situation or something that has been planned for has changed by the time uh, you know, the uh, social group has reached its decision? Thank you. Well, people are going to ask questions as well as make comments. So I'll ask all the speakers to come back at the end to answer questions like that. Um, and so well, let's continue. Uh, there's a contribution there. Any, and just to get a bit of a bank of contributions. Contribution here. Let's have some women. Woman here. Okay, so I think that's enough to remember. Um, okay, so over to you. Hello, my name's Dave. I'm from Israel. Um, I was... I want to kind of reinforce that question over there, but I want to expand it to every type of really big, big sort of management where instead of one manager, you're starting to look at a thousand, two thousand workers managing this, this type of situation because companies in nowadays markets have to continuously evolve and really quickly to stand up with um, consumer wants and very different needs right now. So how would such big managements manage to um, hold on to those very fast-paced sort of decision-making. Okay. Um, so, wait a minute. There's somebody over here. Have you got some microphone? Thanks very much for doing this. Hi, I'm, I'm Fabian from the Isle of Dogs. Um, trying to link two different bits. Uh, the bit about use values as opposed to exchange values and link that to broader economic questions. And basically looking at this as about having an economy in kind where you're, you're looking at the economy not in terms of some aggregate reduced to money and the, the various commodities changing in, in price against each other, but actually the need, and I think this is a, an essential need for any movement around climate change and ecological, ecological issues, is that you start to aggregate the mass of specific, uh, you know, whether it's copper or, 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 or all the different resources. And I mean, I feel that that, that aggregation, more calculation, more issues to be resolved. But my feeling is that when this was discussed back in the 20s, they did not have the computer power that we have now, and I think that offers a great opportunity. Okay, uh, there's a woman over here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Caroline, Mini Stacy. 
I'd like to say it's great that trade unions will be involved and hopefully be on board, but some of the management or the hierarchy of trade unions may be interactable. Um, that I need, you know, we need people to organise a lot of this. Um, a lot of the trade unions need to be democratised. Uh, they can be working for capital. A look at GMB with fracking and Trident, etc. Hello, I'm James Wright uh, from the Canary. And uh, I think that um, there is sort of, when it comes to your social um, uh, kind of way of looking at, uh, a new way of looking at uh, ownership, um, I think that kind of divides the economy into two sections because there is, there's stuff that everybody needs, right? Like water, electricity, um, everything like this. And that kind of model of ownership should be split up from uh, thinking about other things within the economy that not everyone wants, like bowler hats or scarves and stuff like that. So I think there's a fundamental shift in how we should think about these two things. And I think perhaps that with private models of cooperative ownership, that kind of positive competition, if all of these um, uh, sort of uh, energy and everything like that, if that is provided publicly, then facilitating some kind of positive competition, I don't necessarily think that should be overlooked. But... Uh, what I really wanted to say is why isn't the Labour Party going much further when it comes to automation and the possibilities around it? Because uh, co companies like Uber, uh, they want to bring in self-driving cars uh, you know, under horrific working conditions around everywhere. Why don't we just one-up them and say we're going to have publicly owned self-driving cars everywhere that anyone can get into and drive and we're going to have that via a, uh, a research and development programme from centralized government. And then you have stuff like Amazon Go, you walk in the shop, you scan everything, you leave. There's no workers or anything. Why couldn't we have that rolled out in a throughout throughout the in a public ownership scheme where we facilitate these products uh, being sold in this environment rather than having just people slaving away on shop on shop floors? Thanks. Um, there's a, a woman over here, but also I want to say that. If you, any of you feel you can answer any of the questions, like, for example, that last question about automation, it might be that Richard Barbrook over here uh, can answer that in addition to the, the, the comrades up here. So do feel you can engage with the questions as well as make your own. So a woman over there and then a guy with a tartan shirt over there. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Quite. Uh, Theresa Cairns from uh, Newcastle. East, um, Annette, is this on? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Right, okay, I'm going to eat an ice cream. Okay, uh, is that better? Yeah. That's better. <laughs> I don't do a lot of public speaking. Um, Theresa Cairns from Newcastle East. Um, no, not a great lot, great lot of industry left in Newcastle East. Um, and I suppose what I'm, what I'm looking at really is thinking from the bottom up and wondering, just just wondering in terms of difficulties people have talked about and and working with lots of big numbers in in industries. Maybe where I would come from is um, using the principle uh, of 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 cooperation and of and of um, developing plans to work locally in the community to explore, to investigate what local needs are. 
um, from the bottom up. And uh, I'm just sort of thinking, working with the idea of developing community capacity. Um, uh, you know, adult education's been stripped out. Um, the capacity of the community to, to, to work with itself has been stripped out. It's, you know, could, could we rethink this process, not only in an industrial, as an industrial concept, but as in, an, in an industrial space, but in a community space that can then, uh, where people come together to investigate their needs, articulate their needs, and in that process, learning through experience, developing their capacity to, to, as with the Lucas, you know, Aerospace, the Joint Shop Stewards, actually developing local community plans that could then be a, a pro, be the the form could be used to build connections, to build um, capacity with with local industry, with, with um, well, lo look at the potential for local industry. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to turn it on its head and, and think how, how that might, how we could use that whole concept, that whole process, but take it into areas where there is no industry, the industry's gone, where it's, it's been hollowed out. You know, I mean, the time is now green and it has salmon and there are no factories or shipyards. Okay, thanks. Is it Joyce? Teresa. Teresa, okay. Thanks, that's a really important point. So now the, the man with the fashionable um, tartan T-shirt. <laughs> Smashing, thank you. Um, just very, very quickly, fascinating r range of experiences and, you know, kind of hi historic stories that we can hopefully kind of bring, bring back to a kind of contemporary context shared. I'm, I'm really interested to know um, across... Um, the, you know the, the private and the cooperative sector in the UK, but also internationally. What other concrete examples do we know of of this kind of way of working that we can identify, replicate, for, for you know for, to, to to model the direction of travel in a way that is already happening now? Um, so my name's John. I'm here with Rob from Calder Valley Labour. We have a company in Halifax called Suma Whole Foods, which is, I think, the the biggest. Uh, like one of the, the biggest domestic producers of organic food, so it's it's a bit kind of hippie, so it's taking this direction anyway, but it, it's entirely worker-owned. Everybody gets the same salary. Um, you voted to be on the kind of management committee. You serve a tenure. It's been a very durable model. It's lasted for decades, and it's very, very successful. So where do we have these other examples that we can find now and use, and where are their companies... Uh, you know, that are progressive in some ways, like Lush as an example of a big national one, that we can nudge further down this direction of travel. So, interesting people's thoughts on that. Um, yeah, lots of hands are coming up in response to that. There's a woman... Okay, there's a woman up there with a white shirt. Uh, 
Hi, my name's Teresa. I'm a campaigner and an activist, and thanks very much for the presentation. At the last event about neoliberalism, colonialism, etc., and climate, I did make a comment because the presentations were fabulous, and somebody spoke about BAE systems selling arms around the world, and I said, use the right language. They don't sell arms, they export murder. Now, I have a friend, Dave Hooks, who was involved with the Lucas Project. He was an academic, and he spoke about it, and he was talking about um, the skills could still be used, you know, with the people who work for BAE systems where they can build ships that take education around the world, build ships that take healthcare around the world, so you have the latest technologies going across the pond to the third world, because after all, it's the West that has rendered the third world third world, so I think we owe them something, so heaven forbid, heaven forbid that peace should break out instead of exporting war and murder, so that's just a thought. Okay, and then a woman here. Uh, hi. Ah, like that? <laughs> cool. uh, hi, hello. Um, I'm an academic researcher in uh, political economics. I'm a bit puzzled because I would have expected more enthusiasm <laughs> from the audience for, for, these, for these ideas. And I was wondering whether um, maybe you're still working on that and that's why there is not that much enthusiasm because the, the, the idea of the Lucas plan that I know, uh, it's, it's very much uh, revolutionary. Uh, and it's, it's well connected with the future of jobs that we are expecting. I'm Italian and in my countries uh, since 2008 we have had at least 20 experiences of, um, industri yes, of plants in industries that have been taken over uh, by the workers in the vacuum uh, of the crisis in the moment in which uh, the private property couldn't be any more a warranty, wow, a warranty for um, um, for the, the activity, the production activity. Uh, so also in France, uh, there have been several cases. I know that uh, this can be um, this can be done on a scale. There are also empirical studies <laughs> that should have proved this. So I, I was wondering whether. Um, still there is a bit of, of a, a cold reaction uh, from, from the audience because you're still uh, working on that or because there's, there's a bit of uh, not enough information on that. Um, because the idea, it's, it's, I mean, it's a hot topic for the future and it's revolutionary. So I, I, uh, congratulations, I fully support you. Spread the word. <laughs> Great, yeah, I, I felt the audience has been enthusiastic. So I'm gonna hand over to Richard Barbrook. Uh, who also works in John McDonald's office, particularly on technology, to answer the question about automation. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm Richard Barbrook. I work for Digital Liberties Cooperative. Actually, we did the Corbyn Run app game for the last election, and we're running a very British coup mega game shortly next door. Um, the, thing I was, two, the thing I was interested in this is the, our contribution we had up from Newcastle precisely about how do you empower people. I mean, a lot of the things that I think the Lucas plan said, the famous thing was it said the workers are the experts. And that's one of the things that we've got really, one of the things that we're interested in using gaming for and play is to actually allow people to discover the knowledge that they already have. And if you can create structures, which solves partly the problem of our Israeli comrade, 
what, uh, what's the Oscar Wilde said? The problem with socialism is not enough time for the meetings. Uh, so <laughs> all the meetings, you know. And so I think that's it, a way if we can structure it through things like simulations, we can get towards those sort of solutions easier. And I think that then comes on to the other interesting thing, the uh, contribution from the canary, where this vision of somehow fully automated future being a good thing. But actually, we don't really want dead labour to displace living labour, because actually it's the automation process itself that is actually a controlling process. What we already want to do is to reshape the technology in our own interests. And one, you know, one of the reasons we're working in a cooperative structure in the games industry is people have really got to aware, aware of that. They are making games. The creativity, you know, the, the means of production are, are the creativity of the workers because the actual uh, technology they're using is relatively cheap. But the games industry is structured so they have no control over their labour process. And so cooperatives are suddenly becoming in because people want to take back control of their own lives. And I think this is a really important thing about how it, it fits both at a local level, at an enterprise level, but also at our society, is that we want to have a, a society where we can manage our own destiny. And as I said, we could offer our own little solutions, which is uh, why not simulate it first so you're skilled when you actually get to the stage where we do go through the massive process of social transformation. Thanks. Um, we've got time for three more contributions. So, um, as a woman here, uh, maybe it's you. Maybe, you, maybe you're not a woman, but you <laughs> got curly hair. Hi, I'm Monty from Hornsey and we're Green CLP. Yeah, so I, I think the other sort of element to all of this that that can make a big difference is repealing all of the the like Thatcherite anti-trade union laws uh, that came in, um, obviously, and, and have been in place for decades and have been extended by, by this government. And I think that's sort of, you know, that, that's key for two reasons. Like the first is, you know, on a sort of practical level, like, you know, obviously, you know, we're talking about workers taking control of um, of their workplaces and, and you know, those union laws have, have denied that on, on loads of issues, um, you know, including wages, et cetera, for, for decades. And then there's the other thing as well, which is I think if we're talking about, um, you know, if we're talking about having a system where workers are really buying into like democracy in the workplace, really, you know, like invest in that system, then you know, the, the things that a strong trade union movement can give, you know, that sense of like we are in this place, we are a collective, no matter what, what nationality we are, no matter what background we come from, we are workers here. We, you know, we know that we, when we act collectively, we can transform our workplaces. When we act collectively, we can transform society. That spirit that you get from that strong trade union movement that you can have if there aren't these restrictions on workplaces is the spirit that is going to carry forward uh, these big democratic, you know. Uh, ideas and take them from the page and take them from that first step of a Labour government like saying we are going to do this and into these workplaces as a living thing that, that can really make a massive difference. So I think and I think you know repealing the anti-trade union laws is this huge step in, in doing that. So yeah I, I really hope that you know when we have a Labour government that's one of the first things it does to unlock all of this stuff. A woman uh, back there, then I think that'll have to be the last because we've only got, then we'll only have about seven minutes if you're quick. Thank you. Um, I'm Vicky Morris, I'm a member of Alliance for Workers' Liberty. Um, I wanted to echo what Monty was saying. I mean, one of the things that people need is time to, for all this democracy and they're going to have a battle with their bosses to get that time. So that's going to be a big aspect of it. Um, 
when Pat particularly was speaking about model of social ownership, it just, to me, like there's an S word. The S word hasn't been spoken, socialism. To what extent do you see this expansion growing over into socialism or creating the uh, a wish for socialism or uh, fermenting the antagonisms that lead to a confrontation with the ruling class that bring us socialism? So I wondered, what, what really, what are the limits? How far do you think we will actually need something more revolutionary to really change people's lives. Okay, I mean, I think this whole discussion's been about socialism, but um, let's let's go along the line just to get a response, and then unless, well, I think there's only time for these responses. So, Sam, and then Pat, and then Bill. Um, yeah, I'm just going to make a couple of quick comments. I mean, I think, yes, we do need revolutionary change. Um, that is what we're talking about. But I think we have to build this change because we've, we've got to see that we've had 40 years, more or less, of neoliberalism and a class that's been absolutely hammered during that time. We've got a generation coming through. You know, and be quite honest, we're not good at organising around in the new sectors and with younger people, and that's an omission in the TUC as well. We've got an ageing demographic. And I think we have to relearn and re-educate around some things about processes of how we do democracy. But apparently, if we are going to go on a four-day week, then we've got plenty of extra time for doing some democracy and some of these processes as well. And having these discussions with automation, then perhaps that will free up some of that time. I mean, I, I, I totally agree in terms of the, the two comments on automation. One, we have to decide, you know, automation or technology is not necessarily bad. It's what it's used for and how we make choices about that. And it, see it as political, things like Uber, etc. I mean, I'm not an advocate for self-driving cars. I think we've got things called buses and trains that, you know, people can go on that <laughs> they don't need to have cars. But but I think, yeah, <laughs> sorry, pick on that. But, but I think that they are platforms that we should be using, we should be advocating for in terms of social ownership or shared ownership of those. And, and actually that could get the, the cars off the road and then people won't need to have the individual private transport. So I just leave them. Yes. Um, first of all, on um, Oscar Wilde's quip about uh, socialism taking too much time, I think we have to realise how much time is currently used in uh, running things. Um, and much of it is to do with commercial ri rivalry, advertising, um, uh, and so on. Uh, attempts legally to dish your competitors and all the rest of it. Well, in a socialist society, I'm assuming, uh, that would all disappear. So there'd be a lot, if you like, of time freed up um, for that. But secondly, and more importantly, uh, I look forward to a time in which we all participate in running society in different ways. And therefore, instead of this being confined to a small group, uh, the establishment or what in the Soviet Union used to be called the nomenklatura, um, it's it shared around. Um, and we all do our fair share of running things. So I don't really think the problem with, um, with, uh, with it, social ownership uh, be, it being one of time is, is insuperable at all. And I think the same is probably true of the speed of response that was uh, mentioned and how, whether if you have 
a group of owners who have different points of view and different angles, whether you'd have the speed to respond to changing circumstances. Um, so that's the first comment to make. Um, secondly, um, I think the idea that you need time for democracy is true. Um, and uh, that, again, links up to the idea that we need to share different types of work uh, more evenly than is currently shared in our own society. Um, and then thirdly, on um, automation and whether that's a good idea, it seems to me that it is a good idea in one sense because you use automation to get rid of socially and humanly damaging uh, forms of activity. But I think we have to remember that um, the problem, one of the problems with capitalism that Marx um, analysed very clearly is the problem of alienation. We are alienated from one another, we are alienated from what we produce, we are alienated from what we consume. And so I think that uh, we don't want to push automation too far. Uh, human contact and interaction seems to me to be something we don't really want to uh, get rid of. Um, uh, and then lastly, um, on uh, an economy of time, use values, I think that is very important when it comes particularly to ecological issues. Uh, we have to take account of the fact that the planet is finite and we have to recognise that um, we need to uh, take eco-socialism, not just socialism, seriously so that we can actually deal with the green issues that are confronting us ever more um, seriously at the moment. Um, so that's it. Thanks, Pat. That's great. Um, so, Phil. Right, a couple of quick points. One is on looking at articles in, uh, in terms of their use value rather than their exchange value. Uh, this was writ large to me in a conversation with the manager of our factory. We had a kidney machine division within Lucas Aerospace, believe it or not, and at that time the Kidney Patients Association told us that 3,500 people were dying each year because there was no kidney machine available. And our factory manager said, well, yeah, we could produce them, but they aren't profitable. So that was a really interesting point, that the military systems paid for by the taxpayer were profitable to Lucas Aerospace, but things like kidney machines and medical equipment weren't profitable. So somehow there was a straightforward political definition of profit being made. Uh, Peter Ustinov said, I've often seen people collecting pennies on street corners to support children and, life -saving, and provide life-saving medical equipment. I wonder if somehow society's priorities were reversed, we would ever see generals on street corners collecting for missiles and, in fact, how much they'd get. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a good way of summing up the, the values of this meeting in reverse. So firstly, thanks ever so much for everybody coming and contributing uh, and especially for the, the speakers making the introductory and their final comments. And then finally, just to, to make a few plugs, so the book that describes in detail, immense detail, um, the, the Lucas plan with the voices of, of workers, the workers that were involved in it, um, this is just going to cost a tenner and and um, Tom here will take the tenors, so uh, rush up for that. Then there's details of the film, um, 
and there's more details of um, the Lucas, the sort of new Lucas plan, the movement for a new Lucas plan. Um, with the, with the apologies for being a bit egocentric, um, here's a book I've done called A New Politics from the Left, which is trying to generalise from the Lucas plan to say what kind of understandings of knowledge and power do we need to underpin a new politics that will make these kinds of initiatives possible. And also um, Red Pepper. I think it's being sold somewhere. Maybe there's some copies up there. Yeah, that's right. So if you want, and that Red Pepper is trying to report on these alternatives. So the examples like Suma, Lucas Aerospace, historically, both contemporary, his, historical, and also future possible uh, alternatives. So it's worth subscribing to that. It's probably a better deal. Um, it's now quarterly, so it's a much boosted um, magazine to deal with the the much greater challenges of today, plus the website that's much more responsive. So that's five quid. If you can, you can get a copy up there, but give the five quid to me. Not that I don't trust people to dump it there, but just in case. Uh, so, um, I mean, I help. there are lots of people here with much experience. There's Valerie Wise there, who's involved in both the Lucas Alternative Plan with her mother, Audrey, uh, and then um, was involved in the GLC. There's Tom here from the Institute of Workers' Control and spokesman. And then you've heard Teresa from Tyneside and others. And so I just hope there's going to be a lot of uh, mutual discussion. But thanks a lot for coming. And keep involved and keep in touch. And go to these meetings that John's organising to actually in, have a real popular input, community as well as, as worker input, into the kind of industrial economic strategy of the next government. Bring it on. Thanks.